One of the images, am I on, John? Am I? Doesn't sound, okay. One of the images that we see, this is from one of my favorite military movies. This is from Hacksaw Ridge. But when you see an image like that, it brings up a number of different responses and reactions. Or maybe an image like this. This is Sergeant Major Plimley from We Were Soldiers. Both of them are military movies, and they deal with the theme of warfare, of soldiers. Now, when we see that image, there are a number of ways that we can react, depending on our experience or the context. We may look at an image like that and think about things like heroism, patriotism, or bravery. And there are contexts in which that is very, very true. But the problem with warfare is that warfare is an incredibly fertile ground for evil, for injustice, for the misuse of power. So some may look at that image and think about violence, destruction, death, injustice. Without the context, we do not know. Without the context, we could say either of those responses are appropriate. But if you have a context, things might change. Suppose all of us were prisoners of a Nazi concentration camp. And for the last several years, we have seen evil and violence and corruption to a degree that few humans will ever witness. And suddenly, one afternoon, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the injustice, in the midst of the evil, you see a fearsome warrior like this suddenly show up at the gate. He blows away the locks and he throws the gates wide open. And now you're going to respond. How do you see that fearsome warrior? How do you see that one stained with the violence of warfare as he makes his way to deliver you from the greatest of evils? My guess is that if you were that camp survivor, you would see him as your liberator. You would see him as the one that came to set you free from the violence and the evil and the corruption that had surrounded you for however long you were there. But if you know your history, you know that when they 
liberated the camps. General MacArthur made a requirement. He went to all of the villages and towns that were in very close proximity to the camps. And those warriors required every one of those citizens to walk through the camps to see the ovens, to see the corpses. Your view of that fearsome warrior would not have been one of a liberator, but one of a revealer. Revealing the evil within your midst. That because of its intensity would be so easy to deny. Because of the depth of its corruption would be so easy to dismiss. And say it never happened. And when Eisenhower had those people walked through those camps. His purpose was that they might never deny the evil that was so close in proximity. To them, that valiant warrior was a a revealer and a redeemer of that society. But let's say you were one of the guards one of the camp officials. When that fearsome warrior came into the gate, how would you have seen him? Not as a liberator. Not as a redeemer. But as a judge. As a destroyer. The one who would bring recompense for the evil that you had perpetrated. We need that kind of context to come to Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. Because very honestly, in our woke society, we want a theology that does not see God as the lion that does not see God as the great vindicator, that does not see God as a fearsome warrior. We want a woke God who is always gentle and always easy and always kind, always Jesus meek and mild. One of the reasons for that is we do not admit to the terribleness of evil and just how much it needs to be eradicated. When we come to Isaiah 63, and we saw it a little in Isaiah 59, we come and we see this, God is our mighty warrior who comes to eliminate every vestige of evil, internal or external. 
hidden or overt. God says, I will deal with evil. Pardon the grammar. It ain't pretty. It isn't gentle. God deals with evil as evil needs to be dealt with at times. With ferociousness. With seriousness. I wish I could say I come back from vacation with a high uplifting message. But I wouldn't be honest with Isaiah. Because Isaiah wants us to know that God is serious about evil. Whether it's the evil out there, whether it's the evil in here, or whether it's the evil underneath here. God says it's too great a cancer. It's too great a malignancy. It's too great a violation of my holiness and right and truth and all that God's character demands. It is too great a violation to simply ignore and dismiss. There was a passage that when I used to do counseling that I came across, it was a time when for some reason or other I was just dealing with a lot of those who had been sexually abused. And I remember speaking to them and talking with them and I remember that those who had faced such evil, who had been the victims of predators, One of the things that I often heard was a desire for justice. Now, one of the things that they had to learn is justice is not mine to take. It is God's. But in that context, I remember coming across this passage. Probably didn't read it in your devotions this morning. It's in the book of Nahum. I won't even challenge you to look it up. It's one of the minor prophets. Actually, I think we ought to do what the Hebrews do with the minor prophets. They just call them the 12. So you don't have to look up, you know, Jonah and Micah and Nahum. And... But in Nahum, he's talking about evil. Particularly the Ninevites. And he says this. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And I remember reading that in the context of the people that I was working with, and particularly because of some of the training that I had received. And I remember thinking, 
I can bring them a knowledge that in the end there is certainty justice. Because God does not leave evil unresponded to. And so when we come to this passage in Isaiah chapter 63, and we begin in those first six verses, God is pictured as a fearsome warrior, fresh from victory. Now, in the time that this was written, Isaiah's time, in in 800 BC, there were no movies. You couldn't turn on Saving Private Ryan. You couldn't turn on, you know, Band of Brothers. You couldn't, you, you had words to sort of describe what it was like. And Isaiah fills this passages with words. He, there are words here that are used nowhere else in the Old Testament other than here in Isaiah. There are words that are used rarely anywhere else because Isaiah is trying to picture in our minds this, this great fearsome warrior. Fresh from battle, stained with the conflict, but coming to tell his people the battle is over. And so as you begin to read it, the, this important image in Isaiah in Isaiah 56 through 66 is used, he uses it as a literary tool. He wants to grab our attention. And in Isaiah, there's two places where this great warrior is mentioned. One is in Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 21. We read that a few weeks ago. Where God comes and it says the Lord comes. And we get in from Galatians that the image of the, the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness and the sword of faith and all of those things comes right out of Isaiah 59 as God says, I'm coming to fight for what is right. I'm coming, by the way, not what that chorus said. And again, I understand choruses are choruses and they speak, but It's said in there that he comes to fight our battles. No, he doesn't. Comes to fight his battle. The question we ask is not, God, are you here to fight for us? It's, God, are we fighting on the right side? Your side. But he does what's called an inclusio, an envelope. He says, I want you to understand that in Isaiah 60 and 61 and Isaiah 62, where he's talking about the, the rebirth of Jerusalem and Zion is fully what it was meant to be and all of the nations come and gather to worship God in Zion and Zion is the place where God dwells and is the full representation of God's glory and God's character. But to get there, God says it requires this fearsome warrior. So in Isaiah 59, 15 through 21, he begins that section by saying, here's how, here's how Jerusalem is redeemed. Yes, by the lamb that comes, the suffering servant, but also by the mighty warrior. And then he ends that section by saying, God brings redemption Not simply through the suffering servant, but also through the mighty servant. In fact, in Isaiah, the old commentators 
talk about six servant songs. The newer commentators speak about four. They talk about the suffering servants. The one that we read in Isaiah 52 and 53 and 45, where it talks about the one that comes in righteousness and comes gently and comes caring. But the newer theologians don't like the last two servant songs, where it says, I come as the valiant and I come as the fearsome warrior. What Isaiah wants us to understand is to bring about salvation. God is both the lion and the lamb. God is both the suffering servant and the valiant warrior. God is both father and judge. God is holy, which brings about grace and mercy and judgment. But this passage not only is used to envelope, it's also used to introduce. Because we want Isaiah to end with the new heaven and the new earth, which it does just kind of shortly. But what he's going to say is to get there, God must be a fearsome warrior as well as a suffering servant. The passage that begins that enveloping is found in Isaiah 59. And I put it up just so we have a context. And you can be comparing these two passages. They're very similar to one another. Isaiah 59 is a little bit more full and it specifically speaks about this is God himself. In Isaiah chapter 63, it's not quite as clear, but it's there. But he says, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled. That's not a word you want to hear come from God very often. That there was no one to intervene. And so God says, I'll do it. One of the reasons why the judgment at the end is so great is because of a failure of God's people to stand up for righteousness. No one, no one was there. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. He put on the helmet, not just of judgment, but also of salvation on his head. He put also on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. We don't like that. But God says, I will deal with evil. I will deal with it. I will not let it stand. But as you read through there, particularly as you come back to Isaiah 63, if you have your Bibles turned there, I want to just pick up one particular word there because it's an important word. Isaiah chapter 63, it says, Who is this who is coming from Edom? Edom was a country that was south of the nation of Judah and Israel, and they stood against God's purposes. In fact, when Israel and Judah were conquered, they rejoiced. But Edom is not just representing one historical nation. 
In fact, the word Edom there speaks about God's victory over all of human evil. How do I know that? A couple of different ways. First of all, the word Edom does not sound very much like the word Adam to us. But the consonants are exactly the same. Edom is spelled with two consonants, D and M. Adam is spelled with what two consonants? You can figure it out, D and M. Now, that doesn't mean much in English. But in Hebrew, before they put on all the little vowel marks, they looked exactly the same. And it was only by context you knew whether or not it was Edom the nation or Adam meaning all of mankind. And Isaiah is a play on words here. He's saying, yes, there's a historical setting in which Edom is going to be judged by God. But it's not just Edom as a nation. It's all of humanity. How do I know that? Well, we could go and we could look at Isaiah chapter 35, but that's way back and it would take us too long. But we can just look at verse 3 and verse 6 of this passage where he talks about where he has come from. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone from the, what's the next word? Nations, all peoples. He says it again in verse 6. I trampled the peoples in my righteous anger. There is coming a time when God will deal with humanity and say, I will eliminate all evil. And by the way, it's only humans who can commit evil. Creation is fallen. Creation may resist us. Creation at times may hurt us and even destroy us physically. But only humans can commit evil. Evil is a disregard of the impact of my behavior on another person and a disregard of all of God's principles and precepts. I want what I want and I will get it however I choose to get it. Period. God says, I will deal with that. I will take care of that. I will obliterate it. But the other thing that we see here, and this is what confuses us. This is what our woke theology doesn't want to accept. This is why I could read articles that said, you know, the Old Testament is wrong. God is never a fearsome warrior. They just didn't really understand what God was all about. Don't they understand that God is all love and God is all mercy and God is all grace? Yes, he is. But God is ultimately holy. And so he must eliminate evil. In order for us to know salvation, in order for us to know freedom, 
in order for us to know what it's like to be fully what God has created us to be and created us to enjoy, he must destroy evil. Salvation and redemption in Isaiah are paired with the concept of the fearsome warrior. You see it here in Isaiah chapter 63. You can go back and look at Isaiah chapter 59 where he talks about both salvation and judgment in the same passage. And one of the most amazing is Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 3. This is what Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 when he's describing his ministry. But he ends at a certain point. The whole passage is this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's wonderful. That's salvation. That's redemption. But it doesn't stop. God says, I must deal with evil. And he says, and the day of vengeance. By the way, vengeance is a horrible translation of that word. What God is talking about here is not, not bloodlust. It's not even you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. The word has the idea of making recompense. To bring about what is right and just. God says there's a day when I will bring about what is just. The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide to those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness and planted and planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. But to accomplish that, it's not just the suffering servant. It's also the fearsome warrior. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus when he was quoting that passage in Luke chapter 4, he ended with the phrase, the Lord's favor. Why? Because in his first advent, he didn't come as God's deliverer of recompense. In his first advent, he came as the suffering servant, the faithful servant. But when he returns, part of his second return, or his second coming, is the day of recompense. You can't have one without the other. God cannot simply overlook evil. He must deal with it. We don't have time this morning. If we could go, we could go through all of Isaiah. Last week, Cindy and I went to an African-American church. And it was so cool. Because, you know, we have to worry about time and things like that. That's very legitimate. But the pastor, after he preached, he came down and said, Okay, any questions? And they took about 10, 15 minutes or so just to answer questions back and forth. I thought, man, that's cool. I don't know we can do that, but that was cool. You see, we have a lot of questions when it comes to this. 
There are a lot of passages in Isaiah. I wish we had time to look at all of them to see what God is saying. But suffice it just to say a few things about it. First of all, God's tactics, both now and in the end, are specific to each battle. God fights evil in different ways, in different settings. There are times when even in the fight for in dealing with evil, God is gentle and gracious. But there are other times when he says, I'm fearsome. And so why is Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, an introduction as well as sort of that enveloping? Because he says, this is how God will fight against evil. And the first thing he wants us to understand is that battle is this is the place where, yes, he is fighting his battle that brings about a goodness for us. He battles for those who are his faithful servants. And I would also put who are innocent, eliminating the injustice of evil. God will tolerate the suffering of innocent only so long. And then he says, enough. I came across a quote by Thomas Jefferson. He wrote it while he, after he was president of the United States. And he wrote it about slavery. And this is what he said. He says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot slumber forever. He was speaking of slavery. And he said, this is a corruption. This is an injustice. This is an evil that if as a nation we did not deal with, God would deal with. It would take over a hundred years for it to take place. But I think when you watch from 1861 to 1860, not quite a hundred years, 1861 to 1865, God was saying to our nation, enough. God only allows the innocent to suffer so long, and he always makes it right in eternity. What is God going to do with the millions and millions and millions of unborn children that are slaughtered in our country every year? I tremble to think that God is a just God. What is God going to do with the level of violence that exists within our inner cities and is spreading now all over our country? When innocent people are robbed and beaten and killed for no apparent reason. What is God going to do when we take children And for the sake of sexual dysphoria, 
fill them with hormones and drugs that destroy their in- insides to the point and to the, to the, until we finally mutilate them physically. Beloved, we are required as God's people not to do the battle. That's not our battle. We don't take vengeance, but we need to be speaking truth. We need to make sure it is not among God's people. We need to make the steps that are necessary to protect the innocent. Because at some point, God will say, enough. Two weeks ago, we were listening to Walt Kaiser. He's an incredible Old Testament theologian. Part of our vacation was we spent a week down at the Cove, the Billy Graham Education Center. And one of the themes that he spoke about was he believes that as a culture, God cannot stand by forever. And whether it's his ultimate return or one of those foretastes of what he will eventually bring about in justice, God will react. Now, often he's much more patient than I would be. Ask my kids. But God says, I will deal with evil. But be careful. God is not only coming from the battle out there. Yes, Edom, the specific nation. But he's dealing with the battle in all of us. This is also God's people. And like you, none of us remember the show, The Shadow. It was a radio show. Only the shadow knows the evil that dwells in the hearts of men. That's theologically incorrect. God knows. And God will not allow the evil to continue among his people. Yes, we may stand against abortion and we may stand against, you know, all of this craziness with sexual identity and we may tra- stand against violence. But where is the selfishness and the self-centeredness and the rebellion and the disobedience in our own lives and in our own midst? And God says, I've got to deal with it. It will kill you. And so he battles with his rebellious people, eliminating the very power of evil. Again, we don't have time. You have them in your bulletin. Read these passages and read the rest of it where God is saying, you know, of my rebellious people, I must deal with them. And there's a wonderful passage we'll look at next week. Where, no, two weeks. Where God comes and says of his people, finally they remembered the days when I would deliver them and when I would restore them and they remembered obedience and they remembered repentance and God says I long for my people to come to that point where I might restore them but until then I will fight against them or at least the evil that is in their midst when he sees a church that is more materialistic And he sees a church which is more consumeristic. That it is ministry oriented. God says, I must deal with it. 
The next series that we're going to be doing as a preaching team will be dealing with worship. And when God says, when worship becomes, am I blessed? Am I thrilled? Am I, you know, overwhelmed? Am I whatever? Not whether God is thrilled, not whether God is blessed, not whether God is pleased, not whether God is glorified. God says, I got to deal with it. When God's people have abandoned their first love, God says, I have to deal with it. Not because he's mean, not because he's vindictive, but because he knows its destructiveness. Every parent understands this. As, par- as grandparents, you kind of forget it. But as parents, you remember this. You say, child, I can't let that continue because I know where it will lead. This is not triumphalism. This isn't we win. This is he wins. And the last one. He battles against those who emulate evil, eliminating its very existence. None of us emulate and have embraced evil, I don't believe here. We struggle with it. But we have seen in history when it means when the sociopaths and the evil gain power. And God says in the end, it will never happen again. Isaiah 66, 3 through 4. Isaiah 66, 14 through 16. God comes not as a liberator, not as a redeemer, but as a destroyer. Not to destroy people, not to destroy culture, but to destroy evil. In just a few moments, the last thing we need to understand is this, that God alone is sufficient for this battle. This is not my battle. This is not your battle. This is not vigilanteism. This isn't you and I go out and burn the abortion clinics or bomb this or that's absurd. That is not new covenant theology. Now, God has given the sword to nations, and there are times. But the problem is, whenever humans fight against evil, it always stains us. Whenever we take the position of recompense apart, even even in the government, it stains us. Only God is sufficient for that battle. God alone has the righteousness to do this. Do you remember Heath Ledger? Wonderful actor. He, he's played the main character. Remember Knight's Tale? He was the, the knight that, that, you know, the commoner became the knight. But in Batman, he played the Joker. Afterwards, he died of an overdose of drugs. They don't think it was suicide. But he was warned in playing that evil a character to be careful 
Because even playing and acting it will sting you. When you and I have to deal with evil, it will affect us. It's why in Romans chapter 12 and verses 12, we're to, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 9 and then 17 and following, Paul writes this, that love must be sincere and that we are to hate what is evil. Yes, that is true. But then he goes on, don't repay evil for evil. That's not our job. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take vengeance. That's God's work. If you do it, it will stain you. It may even destroy you. Do not take vengeance, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. That's a better translation. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, here's new covenant theology when dealing with evil. Yes, stand against it. But even if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. There is a rightness in even treating those who are doing evil with people who are made in the image of God. Now, there's a rightness to to courts and laws and all the rest. But he warns against this as he ends in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil, how? With good. Now, that doesn't mean that the person who, you know, is robbing your house, you say, oh, welcome in. It doesn't mean that. It it means you can defend people. It means you can do those kinds of things. But it says whenever you fight evil, understand something. It's always going to stain us. It's always going to affect us. Only God can do it without it affecting him. And then finally, God alone has the means to fight this battle. God alone defeated evil on the cross. You want to know how disgusting evil is? Look what it required of the Son of God. God takes this battle seriously. And it was ugly. And it was disgusting. Not in a moral sense, but in a visual sense what God had to do to overcome evil in us, in the world. But God has provided through his son the forgiveness of sins, making us right in a relationship with God. But God will still work on the evil of our hearts. There are temporal consequences when we sin and when we choose evil. God has overcome our struggle with evil through our submission to his spirit that guides and leads us to his word that teaches us and to his will, what he brings into our lives to mold us and direct us. 
God is not ultimately committed to your comfort here. That's heaven. God is committed to your righteousness. And he will do what is necessary to allow us to be free from evil and sin and corruption in our lives. One of the things that Walt Kaiser says is, God first sends his word. And when we don't listen to that, he sends his community. And when we don't listen to that, he sends the circumstances. Always trying to get our attention. And if we still thumb our nose, God says, child, I must deal with it. But the way to deal with it in us is simply through repentance. God says when we come in repentance and seek his ways and accept his work in our lives, all of that joy, all of that wonder is ours not just to have but to experience. And then finally, he obliterates evil through his final judgment. You know the passage. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, a fearsome warrior. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. But they don't battle. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter of grace and mercy, but evil will be destroyed. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God Almighty. Sound familiar? And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God wants to deal with evil in our nation, in our society, in our churches, in our families, and in our lives. The victory was gained on Calvary. And when you and I accept what Jesus did in dying for our sins, we are placed in a position where God seeks to pour out his mercy and grace in our lives and deal, yes, even with the evil that we struggle with. But he does so as a loving father. But if we reject, if we show scorn and contempt and choose evil, God says, I will deal with it. Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing fall into the hands of a living God. Father, allow this message not to cause us to be debilitated in fear, but Father, allow it to encourage us that you are doing your work in our lives and that a simple response of repentance, submission to your will, is what allows us to enjoy the fullness 
of our fellowship with you. Father, if there's someone who's never placed their faith in your son, we invite them to come and speak to me or someone else to know how they can be certain that their sins are forgiven and that that relationship is theirs to enjoy. Father, may all of us take seriously the struggle with evil in our culture, in our church, in our families, in our hearts. May we allow you to fight your battle for your kingdom and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.